Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. There is something unsettling about an iguana. Think of demonic images conjured by Renaissance artists in depictions of hell or some deep-rooted fear that promotes shudders when we regard these creatures. My particular encounter happened over breakfast on the Caribbean island of Montserrat. There's no point in knowing iguanas are herbivores when you sit eating muesli in your shorts and open-toed sandals while one crashes about in a flower bed less than two feet from your table. My iguana, and now with the comfort of distance and time, I can afford to become a little possessive in my memories of him, seemed just a little too close for comfort. The cause of its focus that morning was the presence of a smaller, less decorous iguana at the other end of the shrubbery. I assumed the second creature to be female. The encounter occurred on the morning of St. Patrick's Day in a place that is affectionately known as the Emerald Isle of the Caribbean. As well as frighteningly oversized iguanas, the tiny island of Montserrat also hosts an active volcano. If the wind is blowing from the south, as it usually seems to be, a whiff of sulphur lingers in the tropical air. On the morning in question, the wind was indeed southerly. Combine the demonic iguana with the rotten egg aroma of sulphur, and it's easy to recall images from Hieronymus Bosch's triptych, The Garden of Earthly Delights. In this painting, Bosch depicts a hellscape of damnation inhabited by devils and fantastic animals. Some of these, I thought, too closely resembled my iguana. Shortly after my interrupted breakfast, I attended the celebration of the Saints' Day at the island's Catholic Church, aptly named St. Patrick's. It sits on a headland on the northern shore. Through the open windows, your eyes stray to the lapis lazuli sea rather than the blue of the Virgin's cloak. Father George had warned me in advance not to expect a mass of Irish duration. This is a celebration that goes on for at least two hours, intertwined with calypso music. Everyone seems to sing on this wonderful morning. Babies, wrapped as colourfully as Christmas gifts, are passed from hand to hand. None of them seem to cry, all gurgling with laughter. Light, song and music soon drive the iguana from my mind and the sulphur from my nostrils. When we eventually file out into the sunlight and into the everyday temperature of 28 degrees centigrade, we find that the organisers have been busy. There's a feast laid on for the congregation. Somebody tells me that I have to taste goat water. It's an island delicacy, and I am assured a variation of Irish stew. Over lunch, a diner introduces me to her son. He will participate later in the celebratory masquerade. The boy shows me the steps of the dance he has learned. His mother proudly points out the elements within the jig that correspond to Irish dancing. He is clearly of African origins, and when he shakes my hand, he tells me his name is Kevin Sweeney. Later on, I read names on the grave markers in the local cemetery, Ryan and Riley, Daly and O'Rourke. During my time there, I hear distinctly Irish-accented words and phrases littering the local patois.
This is a unique island. There has been an Irish presence here since the early decades of the 17th century. Some of the first Irish migrants were adventurers, others were indentured servants, and many were victims of forced transportation in the aftermath of the Cromwellian invasion. However, the Irish presence on the island of Montserrat is a socially and politically complex one. From small beginnings, their presence there became more and more dominant. They became plantation owners, growing sugarcane to supply the increasing European appetite for the commodity. It brought vast profits. Over time, the freed Irish indentured servants became slave owners. They passed language, music, dance, cuisine, and even imposed their surnames onto slaves bought at auction. While there, I discovered the week-long festival that commences each St. Patrick's Day is not strictly speaking a celebration of the saint, but a commemoration of the failed slave uprising against their Irish owners that occurred on the 17th of March, 1768. The revolt failed and the leaders were executed. When you arrive on Montserrat, they stamp your passport with a shamrock and they like nothing better than to tell you of their Irish heritage. There is an island-wide DNA survey planned for the future that may offer insight into the real Irish roots of Montserrat's populace. If you ever go there, my advice is to be mindful of the iguanas and always, always keep downwind of the volcano. I found the little lapel pin again the other day, the small blue and gold button engraved Independent Ukraine, 24th of the 8th, 91. I got it at a market in Lviv in 1993, a souvenir from when I reported for the Irish Press newspaper on Shelburne's European Cup tie with Carpati Lviv. Bring food and dollars, the guys on the sports desk joked. Right, and jeans and chewing gum. Well, maybe I did pack just a few of my prejudices. Ukraine? That's that grey place, isn't it? We flew from Dublin on an Aeroflot charter, shared with Belfast Linfield Club, who were going on to Tbilisi in Georgia. As the plane descended into Lviv Airport, it overshot the runway and shot vertically up into the night sky. Shell's manager Pat Byrne and I exchanged that look of, well that was fine, yes, I'm sure they meant to do just that. After another fly-around and an actual safe landing, a legendary Belfast reporter was heard to say, Linfield were so nervous they were clutching their rosaries. Prejudices all around, so. Finbar Flood was then chairman of Shells and of St James's Gate Brewery, so our football charter had extra cargo, 10 kegs of Guinness. In a gesture of pre-peace process friendship, Linfield were waved off from the tarmac onto Georgia with three kegs still on board to soothe their nerves. We were delighted to arrive at the classic Grand Hotel Lviv, built a century earlier in the Austro-Hungarian style. Andre, the manager, placed an Irish tricolour and a Ukrainian flag on the reception desk and the Guinness kegs were carried into the bar. Over the next few days, Lviv revealed itself, a beautiful, bustling, colourful bohemian city 
onion-shaped church domes, cobbled squares, markets selling flowers, fruit and antiques. I bought pen drawings of Ukrainian rural scenes from a soulful brown-eyed young artist. These, he assured me, are just for tourists. Later, a few of us chatted over black tea in the garden as he showed off his real art. It was only two years after independence, but it already seemed like light years since Ukraine had been part of the Soviet Union. My new hosts were amused that I asked about the bad old days. Yes, of course they had learned Russian in school. Yes, there was a park on the outskirts of town, full of old Lenin statues, but why would I really want to go see them, they laughed. We passed that park on the bus to the training ground, through miles of Soviet-era tower blocks. At the ground, the local kids joined in the penalty shootout with Fred, the Shell's trainer. Oh, irony, Shell's wore red, Karpati Lviv wore green. At the press conference, there was almost a diplomatic instant about the fact that Shell's had brought their own chef. Why don't you eat our food? The local reporter demanded. Well, footballers only eat chicken, potatoes and beans, protested Ollie Byrne. Not being part of this strict diet, I was free to enjoy all the hotel restaurants offerings and in particular I loved the blinis with sour cream and berries. Myself and the Shell's fanzine writers, the Alternative Reds Club, roamed the city. We bought furry hats, Russian dolls, books of folk tales and we hit upon the holy grail of shops, the Gum Department Store. A multi-storey compendium featuring all sorts of wonders retro tracksuits and rows of red hair dyes. And on the fifth floor, on the top shelf, a white vinyl record. The Beatles' White Album, with sleeve notes in Cyrillic script. And that song, back in the USSR, except on mine it reads CCCP, and it still plays perfectly. In the Grand Hotel, the staff made black velvet cocktails with Guinness and Ukrainian champagne. Bewildered British accountants in town for possible takeovers of the brewery and chocolate factory raised glasses of fizzy black brew with the football fans. And I wrote daily articles on the good times in Lviv. As for the match, the green shirts of Karpati Lviv beat the Reds of Shelburne 1-0 in that first leg. We stood on the steps of the Grand Hotel that evening as thousands of Lviv fans paraded with gold and blue Ukrainian and green Karpati Lviv flags singing and handing out red roses to us. At the party in the hotel's nightclub, the alternative Reds Club saved the night when the sound system failed. They wired their Walkman up to the amp. It sparked to life and the unmistakable music of the Smiths boomed out of the speakers. We danced with Andre and the rest of the hotel staff in Sputnik nightclub, waving roses around our heads, reflected in the broken mirror wall decor. Exhausted and happy, our bags packed with odd souvenirs, we flew home to Dublin in the early hours on our creaky Aeroflot charter. Shells won the second leg 3-1 in Dublin. There were no Lviv fans in Tolka Park that night, but we had memories to last a lifetime of this vibrant, colourful city and its people with their uncrushable spirit, a spirit never more in evidence than in these dark days. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you from doing 
Dohus, hope. Growing up in the 1970s and 80s, every St. Patrick's Day was full of ritual. But those rituals changed with time. When I was very young, it was simple. You wear something green, you get your shamrock pinned on, you go to Mass, and to be fair, that last one was a lot of days. Okay, maybe you go to an Irish language Mass. Then as a teenager or student, celebrating your Irishness meant going out in the terror. And a few years later, you find yourself celebrating the patron saint at a concert or taking the kids to the All-Ireland Club Finals. Now maybe it's a sign of age or nostalgia and I'm not an ultra-real eater myself, but I feel that St Patrick's Day isn't complete for me unless I get to sing the hymn Dohus Lynn Neve Podrick somewhere. We were taught it in primary school and if you don't know it, it's a hymn to St Patrick, Aspel Moore and Heron, great apostle of Ireland. And of course, because of the way we were taught things in school, learn it by heart, repeat, repeat, repeat. Now, many years later, along with Kookaburra Sits by the Old Gum Tree and the Our Father in German, I still know every word. Dohas Lynn Neve Podrig, Aspel Morna Heron, literally hope with us, St Patrick, great apostle or advocate of Ireland. Anyam Oryark Glegal, Solus Moran Tele, a bright and noble name, light of the world. I reread it recently, and it got me thinking about hope. Because when you look around you and you listen to the radio and you read the papers, hope can be hard to find. We're like little corks bobbing about on an ocean whose waves are being whipped up by forces on other shores. We almost haven't time to hope. Douglas Lynn is a poem originally written back in the 8th century by a County Armagh man called Nanina Eckes. But the version we sing today is attributed to the Gaelic revival poet and scholar Tomás O'Flanley, who was born in Ballinrobe in County Mayo. And you wonder, what would Nanina Eckes have been hoping for in South Armagh in the 700s? Hoping that the flower of Christianity that Patrick planted would flourish, that the snakes wouldn't come back, or maybe that they wouldn't be attacked by hordes of rampaging Vikings anytime soon. I suppose we'll never know. But right throughout our history, our poets have taken time to offer hope. Patrick Kavanagh, in one of my favourite poems, The Long Garden, describes a wide-eyed childish hope. It was the garden of the golden apples. And when the Carrick train went by, we knew that we could never die till something happened. Like wishing for a fruit that never grew. Seamus Heaney was thinking more of political change when he wished once in a lifetime that hope and history would rhyme. Even Yeats, when he just gets up to go to Innisfree and look after his nine bean rows, is hoping for a quiet, peaceful life. And Derek Mahon's relentless positivity would do you the power of good. The sun rises in spite of everything and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. By nature, 
we're a hopeful people. Statistics show that in Irish we use the word dochus three times more often than the word edochus, which is the opposite, hopelessness or despair. And even if God is less visible in our daily lives these days than in the 1970s, I think as songs go, Dochus Lynn Neve Padrig is fit for our times. In fact, if you were writing a song to sum up your country, say, a new anthem, you could do worse than Dochus Lynn. There's no marchant, marchant, wading knee-deep in the blood of your enemies like the Marseillaise. None of your long to reign over us like the next-door neighbours. You don't even have to pledge your lives to Ireland. Just Dohus Lynn. Hope with us. That'll do for me. It was a settled woman who changed my life in the most radical way. There were no placards, no marches, no pretending that our journeys in life were on the same path. Instead, we recognised and respected our difference. For somebody who felt trapped and lost, confused about the direction of life ahead of me, this one woman managed to put me on a different, safer path. It was early spring during the mid-1990s. The Galway mist hung in the air, my winter woolly jumper was matched with jeans and a purple pair of Doc Martin boots, the uniform of rebellion. There were about 200 of us from various parts of the country packed into a community centre. The atmosphere was filled with activists wanting change. A powerful sense of camaraderie and solidarity almost overwhelmed me. It was my first traveller rights meeting. My chair was parked alongside a settled woman with brown hair. She had a baby on her knee who was older than an infant, but not quite a toddler yet. And the wall around us hung quilts in the shape of the map of Ireland, threaded through with family names. My attention was held by this intricate genealogy. I wasn't really listening to the speaker. Suddenly, the room filled with rapturous applause. The weight of a child was on my knee. Automatically, I put my arms around him. His mother said to me as she headed to the podium, If he starts crying, just take him outside. That was the day that Ronnie Faye became my friend. After listening to the speeches for a while more, I turned down my chair and put my arms round the baby's waist, steadying his head with my chin. We moved outside the hall. The smell of freshly made soda bread was lowering both the baby and myself to make inquiries. I broke a piece of bread and put it into his hand, watched with delight as he stuffed his mouth. Later in the morning, Ronnie came to find me. The child was now asleep in my arms. Comfortable, there seemed to be no point in handing him back to his busy mother. It was a pleasure holding that child right up to the end of the day when he wanted his mother again. Months later, there was a job advertising Pavy Pine Traveller and Roma Centre for manager of the gender-based violence programme. Later again, the phone call came. The job was mine. The starting day was the following Monday. For 12 years, my desk was in front of Ronnie's. She watched me like a hawk. As a boss, she seemed to go harder at me than anyone else. 
During the early years, there was always tears after supervision. Ronnie's work ethic was demanding and rigorous. For my part, there was always a promise that every Friday was going to be my last. The Traverse Settle conversation is difficult and tricky. It takes courage to talk about our different histories. For me, this only ever happened once. It was with Ronnie Fay. The conversation moved from the professional sphere into the private sphere. Details of our lives spilled into one another. The accumulation of hurts and wrongdoings were shaping my personality. Ronnie knew I was a woman in trouble. Trouble that was mostly of my own making. Constant suspicion, coupled with my lack of trust, made me a difficult bureau to be around. The false bravado, the hidden vulnerability, this woman saw through me. My ability to handle anger and rage was often wasted on the wrong moment and the wrong person. There was a volcano ready to erupt any time, anywhere. This woman encouraged and supported me to turn my rage into ambition. She trusted and respected me. She understood the context of my history and the history of travel women. The lava was out and the love slowly came. The relationship, both personal and professional, became deeper over the best part of 30 years. Ronnie had integrity in abundance. Her mission in life was to expose the underlying inequalities for Roma and travellers. We read books, talked politics and explored feminism. Wisdom, charisma and a deep sense of humanity were all embedded in Ronnie's work ethic. It was a Tuesday afternoon in February, 15 years ago, about four o'clock, time for my supervision meeting. Ronnie had made a cup of tea for both of us. There we were again, sitting beside each other, neither one of us knowing what to say. We started to go through my work plan. She stopped me and handed me a letter. The envelope had the breast check in it. The next few minutes and hours are foggy, That was the day that Ronnie told me she was sick. Christmas 2021 Ronnie, in the final stages of her illness, was no longer able to receive visitors. Instead, that child, who was between infancy and being a toddler, turned up at my door with a book and a box of chocolates. The baby, now a grown man, Jonathan, was the first settled child that I'd held on my lap. Her son, Jonathan the conduit for our friendship and feminism. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we see I think it was the British Army patrol that stopped me on the road between Newry and Points Pass sometime in the mid-1980s who did most to convey to me the emotional truth of the war poems of writers such as Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. I had read them in college, but in common with a lot of documentaries about world conflicts that I'd watched on television as a teenager, they'd seemed to belong to the distant past and felt somehow unreal. By contrast, the young soldier who was leaning down towards my car window and asking me to show him some form of ID 
was very much of the present, and his rifle looked alarmingly real. And yet he did not conform to anyone's idea of a fearsome enemy. I presume he must have been at least eighteen or nineteen years old, but he could have passed for fifteen. His light, downy moustache looked like something he might have bought in a joke shop and stuck on his upper lip that morning in a valiant but vain attempt to appear older. His uniform seemed too large for him, and despite the coolness of the day, beads of perspiration trickled down his forehead from underneath his helmet. He looked like a frightened child, which I suppose is pretty much what he was. And I wondered if he was destined to be one of those soldiers, those boys, a houseman had in mind, when he wrote about the lads that will die in their glory and never be old. The same thought occurred to me over the last few days, looking at the heartbreaking images on television and Twitter. Those young Ukrainian men bidding farewell to their girlfriends, wives and families as they prepared to leave Ireland to return home and fight for their country. The teenage volunteers carrying foam ground mats and sleeping bags, described by Jeremy Bowen of the BBC as resembling students going camping, but for the fact that they had assault rifles slung over their shoulders. The video that appears to show a young Russian soldier who has surrendered, being given food by a group of Ukrainians and crying as he talks to his mother over the phone and places a gentle kiss on the screen. The cherub-faced marine engineer who volunteered to detonate explosives on a bridge to slow the Russian advance, knowing that he would also be killed in the explosion. Yeats's phrase, the delirium of the brave, came to mind. The awfulness of war takes many forms, and while acts of heroism can lift the heart, there is something particularly harrowing about the idealism of youth falling victim to the darker forces of geopolitical manoeuvring. A few weeks ago, in early February, I went along to Dublin Castle to have a look at the exhibition Objects of Love. This is a very personal collection of family photographs, documents and memorabilia gathered by the Dublin-based art dealer Oliver Sears to record the suffering his Polish family endured during World War II. Their crime, as he puts it, was the simple crime of being Jewish. He explains how the pre-war photographs of his family are the hardest for him to look at because they record a time of innocence, a time that could not conceive of a plan to eradicate Jews industrially, without trace. He notes that his paternal grandfather lost his parents, his brother, twenty aunts and uncles, and their families in Auschwitz and Treblinka, and I tried to imagine how it was possible to persuade so many people to behave in such an unspeakable manner to their fellow human. Sears goes some way towards answering this question when he writes, I give this account of my family history to describe what happens to ordinary, law-abiding, loving human souls when democracy is dismantled and replaced with fear and diktat. The degradation is incremental, and it always starts with words. As I walked around the exhibition, 
and learned how such atrocities mark successive generations of a family, even those who were not directly involved, I foolishly congratulated myself on being fortunate enough to have been born into a Europe that could no longer conceive of a plan to invade another country, a Europe where large-scale conflicts were a thing of the past. About 12 days later, Russia invaded Ukraine. Most junior third school students today are familiar with Wilfred Owen's powerful poem Dulce et Decorum Est, in which he describes in graphic detail the gruesome death of a soldier by mustard gas. Owen, who had first-hand experience of trench warfare, castigates those in power for telling young soldiers mere children, eager for glory, the old lie that it is sweet and honourable to die for one's country. The title of the poem and its anti-war sentiments are an ironic twist on an ode by the Roman poet Horace, which is essentially a poem in praise of war and self-sacrifice. I reread Horace's poem the other day and could find comfort only in the last two lines. The wicked man advances, but punishment, though lame of foot, has rarely let him escape. The lads in their hundreds to Ludlow come in for the fair. On Kittel, Scarhner, Father, Exina, Idro, Bon, the Spera. Antida Troita, Fucht na hihe ek channeling, Balian mawahar klocha, Krohian she kirkel, Lean and she la crevoga e, Agus curren she an kittel in a hianuaser shin, A hoen dove doite, a kohormu go kyotohaun, Go korohonach, mar asel, Agus a macho kirkel fohna na glochalia, Agus na nyon na lohna, Tosian lasraga e grankas of yohan. Tien maher con a hilla bati ya oil don tinna. Tomit saita eg myracht an vrohl, gomeran agla varav grimoring, nach meroig an tishke, gunimoig an tinna, guneloig an law, agusk will blast na grenya ashkuba on our graken. The kettle. Long shadows stretching away towards the horizon, the tide gone out, the chill of the night moving in. My mother gathers stones and makes a circle. She fills it with twigs and puts the kettle on this. It sits giddily like a donkey, its black arse wobbling. And out from that sheltered circle of grey stones and in spite of the breeze, the flames start to dance in the gust. My father goes to gather more sticks for the fire. We are tight together in the joy of the heat until a deathly fear takes a grip of us. That the water won't boil, that the fire will go out, that the day will disappear, and that the heat of the sun is disappearing from our skins.
on this morning's programme. The first piece we heard was where Iguanas Parade on St. Patrick's Day. That was by Joe Carney. Lviv was by Yvonne Judge. John Toll gave us Dulcus. Friendship and Feminism for the late Ronnie Faye was by Rosaline McDonough and that was read by Kathleen Murphy. The Lads That Will Never Be Old was brought to us by Connell Hamill. We also heard at the end there on Kittle or the Kettle, a poem by Catherine Forley. The music this morning included Volcano by Jimmy Buffett. Ask was, of course, from the Smiths. Zocus Lynn Naporek was sung by the Palestrina Choir of Dublin and they were directed by Blonard Murphy. Also in there this morning, we heard Stand By Me by Tracy Chapman and the lads in their hundreds of sung by June Tabor. Just to let you know as well about a book which you may be interested in, Unsettled is a collection of essays by Rosaline McDonough and it's published by Skeen Press. Lastly, Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson, the producer of the programme, Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.